what comes to mind when you think of the deadliest hurricane in American history? It's not Andrew, Maria, or even Katrina. It's an unnamed storm that struck the Texas coast in 1900. The storm we now call the Great Galveston Hurricane. The Great Galveston Hurricane, by all accounts, is still the deadliest natural disaster in American history. It was responsible for at least 8,000 deaths, with some estimates in the five-figure range. The storm struck the island by total surprise, but it shouldn't have. The Central Office of the National Weather Bureau warned Galveston of the upcoming storm. They had received reports from Antigua, Cuba, and the Florida Keys about the path of the storm, but other factors limited the urgency of the information, and Galveston went into the night unprepared. What made this storm different from the others that had struck Galveston? What caused this storm to be so deadly? Why weren't they prepared? I'm Nolan Nocturne. This is Disaster by Design. Episode 3, The Great Galveston Hurricane. Galveston is a port and resort city situated on a barrier island off the coast of Texas. The island is about a mile and a half from the mainland and about 50 miles southeast from Houston. Today, it is an extremely popular tourist destination. Following the end of the Civil War in 1865, Galveston established itself as a high-density port and began rivaling the economic output of New Orleans. This popularity gave rise to the Strand District, known for a time as the Wall Street of the South. Business was booming in Galveston, but that prosperity brought complacency. Enter Isaac Klein. He was the chief meteorologist at the Galveston, Texas office of the United States Weather Bureau, today now known as the National Weather Service, from 1889 to 1901. Klein had a certain skill for weather prediction. He was one of the first meteorologists to accurately predict freezing temperatures and was the first to warn of flooding along the Colorado and Brazos rivers. That skill came with hubris. From the start of his tenure in Galveston up to the 1900 storm, he regularly scoffed at the idea that a hurricane would ever hit the island. In the mid-1800s, the nearby town of Indianola on Matagorda Bay was undergoing its own boom, 
and was second to Galveston among Texas port cities. Then, in 1874, a powerful hurricane blew through, nearly destroying the town. Indianola was rebuilt, though a second hurricane in 1886 ultimately drove residents to live elsewhere. Many Galveston residents took the destruction of Indianola as an object lesson on the threat posed by hurricanes. Galveston Island is little more than a sandbar along the Gulf Coast. These residents proposed a seawall to be constructed to protect the city. Their concerns were ultimately dismissed by the city's government. Since its formal founding in 1839, the city of Galveston had weathered numerous storms, all of which the city survived with ease. Residents believed any future storms would be no worse than previous events. In order to provide an official meteorological statement on the threat of hurricanes, Galveston Weather Bureau Chief Director Isaac Klein wrote an 1891 article in the Galveston Daily News in which he argued not only that a seawall was not needed to protect the city, but that it would be impossible for a hurricane of significant strength to strike the island. The opinion held by some who are unacquainted with the actual conditions of things that Galveston will at some point be seriously damaged by some such disturbance is simply an absurd delusion. Isaac Klein, The Galveston Daily News, 1891. The seawall was not built, and development activities on the island actively increased its vulnerability to storms. Sand dunes along the shore were cut down to fill in low areas in the city, removing what we now know is a natural barrier to the Gulf of Mexico. Without the sand dunes, the surge regularly encroached upon roads and buildings. September 4th, 1900, the Galveston Office of the National Weather Bureau began receiving warnings from the Bureau's central office in Washington, D.C. A tropical storm was moving over Cuba. The Weather Bureau forecasters had no way of knowing the storm's trajectory because National Weather Bureau Director Willis Moore made a point to ignore any data coming from Cuba. No. Seriously, the Spanish-American War had just wrapped up, and tensions between Cuba and America were strained. Willis Moore implemented a policy to block telegraph reports from Cuban meteorologists at the Belin Observatory in Havana. It was, at the time, considered the most advanced meteorological institution in the world. Or also changed protocol to force local weather bureau offices to seek authorization from the central office before in issuing 
storm warnings in case they had received information from outside sources. Klein passed along warnings from the Washington office to the local newspaper, but they were largely ignored. On the morning of September 8th, sea swells intensified despite only partly cloudy skies. Due to the lack of rain, few residents believed a hurricane was coming and fewer more evacuated. Galveston had one main bridge to the mainland at this time. Years later, Isaac Klein claimed that he took it upon himself to travel along the beach and other low-lying areas warning people that the storm was coming. No other survivors are able to corroborate these accounts. With his documented arguments against hurricanes reaching Galveston, historians today are skeptical of Klein's attempted self-defense. Without an understanding of what was headed toward them, the residents of Galveston went to sleep on September 8th without any knowledge of the forthcoming hell. The hurricane made landfall on September 9th, 1900, in the morning, around 9 a.m. local time. Direct landfall was just east of Galveston. Estimated wind speed at the time was 140 miles per hour. Today, we would call that storm a Category 4 on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. At the time of the storm, the highest point in the city of Galveston was only 8.7 feet above sea level. The hurricane brought with it storm surge of over 15 feet. Picture that. The surge was powerful enough to shred and pulverize everything it hit. Water washed over the entire island. Buildings that survived the initial surge were removed from their foundations. Over 3,600 homes and buildings were destroyed. As severe as the damage was to property, the death toll was even greater. The storm destroyed the bridge to the mainland, along with telegraph lines. Without them, nobody knew that Galveston had even been hit. 11 a.m. September 9th, one of the few ships at the Galveston Wharfs to survive the storm, the Farabee, arrived in Texas City, which is just north of Galveston. It's protected within Galveston Bay. The ship carried six messengers from the city who set off to Houston to relay the message. The messengers arrived at the Houston Telegraph office at 3 a.m. on September 10th. A message was sent to Texas Governor Joseph Sayers and U.S. President William McKinley. I have been deputized by the Mayor and Citizens Committee of Galveston to inform you that the city of Galveston is in ruins. The exact author of the message was unstated and remains unknown. The messengers reported an estimated 500 dead 
nobody was willing to believe this was true, either out of disbelief or willful ignorance. Nevertheless, residents of Houston knew a powerful storm had blown through and had been made ready to provide assistance. Workers set out by rail and ship for the island almost immediately following the landing of the Ferriby. Rescuers arrived to find the city completely destroyed. Official records document the number of total dead at 8,000 which was 20% of the population at the time. Unofficial estimates vary wildly, but range between 6,000 to 12,000. Most had drowned or been crushed by the debris. Many survived the storm, but died after several days of being trapped, with rescuers unable to reach rescuers could hear the screams of the survivors as they walked on the debris, trying to rescue those they could. The dead bodies were so numerous that burying them all was impossible. The dead were initially weighed down on barges and dumped out to sea, but the sea is a cruel mistress. Gulf currents ultimately pushed the bodies back into the harbor. Funeral pyres were set up on the beaches at first, but the number was so numerous that pyres were eventually built on location. They burned for days and weeks on end. The authorities passed out free whiskey to sustain the distraught men conscripted for the gruesome work of collecting and burying the dead. With the death toll at 8,000, more people were killed in this single storm than the total killed in all tropical hurricanes that have struck the United States since then. To prevent future storms from causing destruction like that of the 1900 hurricane, three major improvements to Galveston Island were made. The first seawall that residents had campaigned for was finally built in 1902. Three miles long, 17 feet high. It is directly credited with minimizing the impact of a hurricane that hit the island in 1915, along with every other storm since. The second, an all-weather bridge was constructed to the mainland to replace the ones destroyed the storm. The bridge has been updated over the years and is now part of Interstate 45. The most dramatic effort to protect the city was its raising. Over 2,100 buildings were raised in the process of over 2,100 buildings were raised in a process of dredging sand from the Gulf and pumping it underneath each building including the 3,000-ton St. Patrick's Cathedral. The city raised as much as 17 feet above the previous elevation. The seawall and the raising of the island were jointly named a National Historic Civil Engineering Landmark by the American Society of Civil Engineers in 2001.
Today, Galveston is home to a cruise port, two universities, and a major insurance corporation. Homes and other buildings that survived the hurricane have been preserved and give much of the city a Victorian look. The seawall, since extended to 10 miles, is now an attraction itself, as hotels and tourist attractions have built along its length in seeming defiance of future storms. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends. If you have an episode idea or a question about a topic, email me at nolannocturn at protonmail.com. You can learn more about the show by following me on Twitter at nolannocturn. Show logo and graphics were developed by Heath Robinson. Music for this episode was Symphony Number no. 1, Movement 3, Failure, by Steve Coombs. Thanks for listening. Oh, one last thing. This podcast is 100% ad-free now and forever. If you really like what you hear and want to help support the show, check out the tip jar or our Patreon campaign. Links are available in the description.